Hi guys, and welcome back to my podcast, After Dark. My name is Allison, and like the title says, in this podcast, we're going to be looking into some of the strange, crazy, and disturbing things people do after dark. This includes things like heists, robberies, murders, serial killers, and more. So if you're interested in stuff like that, stick around. In these cases, we're going to be looking at where, when, and why these crimes were committed, and if the case was ever solved, or if it remains a mystery to this day. In this episode, we're going to be covering the French bank tunnelers, which the New York Times is calling the heist of the century. On July 19th, 1976, in Nice, France, and I'm sorry to anyone who speaks French, I'm probably pronouncing this city wrong, but in all fairness, it is spelled N-I-C-E, as in nice, so I apologize if I'm pronouncing it or any of the other French in this episode incorrectly, but I am trying my best. Anyways, back to the story. This was a regular Monday morning, people were at the bank grumbling about the start of another work week, but these customers became even more frustrated when the bank was unable to open its main vault. Thinking there was just a faulty mechanism, the bank called in safe manufacturer specialists who arrived at 10 a.m. They were also unable to open the vault, and it didn't seem like they were ever going to get it open, so they decided at noon to use a jackhammer, which I don't know if that would have been my second choice, but kudos to them for just going all out. The jackhammer did end up working though because at 3pm, after about 5 hours of trying to get this vault open, they created a small hole and were not prepared for what they found inside. Safe doors were wide open, steel grills were cut, and on the floor was half a foot's worth of paper including things like uncancelled checks, stocks, bearer bonds, wills, and deeds. Sticking out of these papers were crowbars, blowtorches, axes, and 27 acetylene tanks. And if you only have a 10th grade chemistry education like me and have no idea what acetylene is, it is a colorless gas mainly used for welding and cutting things. Which police would come to realize that these tanks were used to weld the door shut from the inside, making it unable to open and that there was in fact no faulty mechanism like they first thought. The first policeman to enter actually climbed through the hole and lost his pants because they got stuck, which is a sight I would pay to see. I mean, when else would you get the opportunity to see a police officer in the middle of a ransacked vault without any pants on? Hopefully, for his sake, he picked that day to wear normal underwear instead of Superman ones or something, or else he would be very embarrassed. Other policemen entered the vault after it was determined that the thieves were gone, and they were greeted by a peace sign on the wall with the message, without weapons, without violence, without hate, which is a little bit ironic because they did steal about $10 million in cash and jewels, but it's kind of a cool statement that I can maybe get behind, you know? By the title of this episode, it's probably no surprise, but the thieves entered and left through an almost 30-foot-long tunnel that was barely big enough to crawl through. Major props to the thieves, though, because this tunnel was very elaborate, giving this robbery the title of most expensive and most artistic heist. The tunnel had metal or concrete reinforcements in areas, a small ventilation tube that brought in fresh air, an electrical cable, and even carpet on the floor of the tunnel, because, you know, even thieves don't want to get their clothes dirty. I mean, who are they, scoundrels? No. <laughs> The police even found a portable stove that the thieves used to cook meals, meaning they had been there multiple days. 
The tunnel connected to the sewer lines behind the bank and is thought that they floated all the stolen goods on rafts through these sewers because it would be way too much to carry. And then after that, they would load up all the items onto a panel truck and simply drive away. I would be grateful that you were not one of the police officers on this case because the amount of work they had to do was insane. Every single jewel, tool, and piece of paper in that vault had to be documented and cataloged. This alone took 12 detectives four whole days to finish. And then after that, every single surface needed to be dusted for fingerprints, which based on the gloves they found inside the vault seemed kind of pointless and they weren't really expecting much to come from it. But they did end up finding one fingerprint on the underside of a safe and then they had to go through the process of trying to see if it matched any of the bank employees because, you know, obviously they work in the bank, they'd probably touch the safes. But the fingerprint didn't match any of them. And that's only part of the work that needed to be done. In the vault, there were 4,000 lockboxes, which meant that there were 4,000 people that they needed to interview and do background checks for. Every employee that the bank ever had, past and present, also needed to be checked because there was obvious knowledge of the bank and the vaults and how everything worked in the whole crime, and so police needed to make sure that none of these people were involved. They also had to follow the lead of the acetylene cylinders and the electrical wire, trying to trace them back to where they were bought and who bought them because obviously not everyone's buying like a mile of electrical wire every day. It's something that people would notice. Just reading and talking about all of this work sounds like a major headache, and I'm not gonna explain the workings of the French police departments and everything that goes on in them because I don't think you guys would care to hear it, and frankly, it is a little confusing to me. But what I can tell you is that day, every detective was tasked with contacting any informants they had on the streets and trying to gather any information they could. And by the time that they left the bank that Monday, they had actually known the name of one of the robbers. Curiously though, they didn't share this information with reporters or anyone for that matter. And there weren't actually any updates by the police for 100 days after the robbery. One of the men working this case was Inspector, and I'm sorry, I'm probably going to butcher this name and every other name, but Inspector Valentin Buschetti. A few days before the heist, he was driving next to a car holding 34-year-old Daniel Michelucci, who you could call a frequent flyer for the French police, and he also had one other passenger with him. The inspector pulled him over because he was curious who this passenger was. He searched their car and in the trunk found some red painted chisels, but he had no reason to arrest them, so he let the men go on their way. He probably wished he hadn't, though, when a few days later, he saw the exact same chisels in the wreckage of the bank vault. Daniel's name would come up multiple times in this investigation. In fact, on the very first day that the police discovered the heist, they connected him to a call on July 9th, 10 days before the heist, about a group of strange men in a villa that was supposed to be empty. When police arrived that day, the men gave a plausible explanation, saying they were just borrowing it from the owner, and after writing down the names of the men, the police went on their way. They returned to the villa after the heist to find a watertight flashlight, identical to ones they found in the vault. The bottom was also covered in mud, which after using forensic science was later determined to be the same mud from the sewers that the tunnels connected to. 
The police still had the names of these five men, but it was clear that none of them were the mastermind of the operation, and the job would have required a lot more than five people to complete, so they still had a lot of work to do trying to figure out all the other members of this crew. The police were now tasked with finding and following these five men from the villa and any of their acquaintances, like Daniel Michelucci's brother, Henri, who was a professional burglar and highly suspected to be a part of the heist. This went on for weeks, with more and more officers becoming involved and more people being surveilled. They were sure that eventually one of the suspects of the sewer gang, as they were calling them, which honestly reminds me of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because they lived in a sewer. But like out of everything they could call them, that's what the police decide. Anyways, they figured that one of them would eventually get wind of what was going on and they would all flee. They continue to follow these people and some time passes before they catch Adrian Zeppi, who was 54, and Francis Pelgrin, who was 38, trying to sell gold bars at a bank in the Rivera village of Roquefort Pins. The numbers on the gold matched with the ones taken from the vault in Nice and connected them to the robbery, even though none of their names were on the list from the villa. They obviously arrested them, but this caused the police department to speed up their process and move forward with any information they had, because the arrest of the two members would certainly be noticed by the rest of the group and they couldn't risk losing all of them. On October 26th, the 100th day of the investigation, 27 people were taken in for questioning by a multitude of police officers. Over 200 actually, which seems like a bit of an exaggeration to me for 27 people, but I mean, hey, they got the job done and taken them in, so I guess they did something right. Of these 27 people were not only suspects, but associates and relatives of the suspects and wives or mistresses. These people were held for 48 hours while police tried to get confessions out of them. This is similar to the American system where suspects can be held for 48 hours without formal charges and they have the right to remain silent. The two systems differ, though, where in France, the suspect cannot be touched, and they do not have the legal right to a lawyer. They can see a doctor, though, if it's requested. In France, they also have to be given breaks and food occasionally, but the law does not specify a certain time, so it's really up to the interrogators. Denying someone food and sleep per prolonged periods of time can be considered torture, and a lot of detectives do use this to try and get confessions out of people, so it's unfortunate that this loophole in the law allows this. There were 13 suspects held in Paris who had an easy time being interrogated. They were released within a day and they had no charges filed on them at all. Others were not so lucky. The nice prisoners were brought to the police station in Marseille where they were questioned for the full 48 hours. After their time was up, police sent all but seven of them home. Adrian and Francis, who I mentioned earlier, were among this group of seven, and they were brought in front of Judge Richard Bozes. Okay, next time I'm picking a case that takes place in the U.S. or somewhere with easier names that I won't completely mispronounce. Richard basically functioned as judge, jury, and executioner. He was presented all the information and statements collected by the police, interrogated the suspects who only now have the right to a lawyer, which doesn't seem very fair or useful at this point, but the judge determined that there was enough evidence to charge six out of the su seven suspects with complicity in the robbery, and they were sentenced to prison. 
The seventh man was Homer Felipe, a 46-year-old who just happened to have some bad luck because he was carrying an illegal gun when the police brought him in for questioning, even though he had nothing to do with the robbery and wasn't involved in it at all, but he was still sent off to prison for the illegal firearm. While the police arrested seven people, this wasn't very impressive because they only found a couple of dollar bills with numbers matching the ones from the bank in Nice but the majority of the stolen goods still weren't discovered and neither was the mastermind behind the operation. They also hadn't captured Daniel Michelucci, the driver transporting the red painted chisels. He wasn't in custody, but the police did know a lot about him. They arrested his younger brother and knew that he had opened a safe deposit box in Brussels in the bank Lambert. Daniel was not very smart though, because while he was smart enough to use an alias, he was stupid because he used his maternal grandfather's name, which was easily traced back to him. The Brussels police then had the task of surveilling the bank and looking for any sign of Daniel. The police caught him inside the bank and found his girlfriend Michelle Siaglo, a prostitute, out in the car. In Michelle's purse, they found 10 bills from the nice banks, and in Daniel's safe deposit box, they found $85,000 in French bills from the robbery and six of the stolen gold bars. While this was a big accomplishment for the police, and they did find a good chunk of the stolen goods, it was clear to them that Daniel wasn't the mastermind because he didn't have the planning capability this heist required, which, like... Damn, the police are just really out here roasting this guy's intelligence, basically calling him dumb. But they still obviously had to find the brains behind the operation. The center of organized crime in France knew every single gang leader, and yet none of them seemed capable of planning this heist. This caused a very scary thought for the police. Was the brain of this operation a mastermind criminal, but also an amateur and someone they've never heard of before? and someone that even other criminals have never heard of before. Because if you'll remember when the robbery was first discovered, detectives contacted every criminal informant they had, and even with all of their information, they still weren't able to find this guy. Some people were even starting to believe that this so-called mastermind didn't even exist, and he was almost treated like a mythical creature. Catching this guy would have been the same as discovering a mermaid to some of these cops. Suddenly, though, the mystery of the brain was unraveling. The police had a name, and we don't know where they got the name, but they had no way at all to connect him to the crime. They tried for 24 hours to come up with some kind of proof and came up with Jack Squat. The police were constantly watching this guy, scared that at any moment he would flee. In fact, they were surprised he hadn't already. Either this guy was truly fearless and believed that there was no way he would be connected to the heist, or he just wasn't the brain at all. Finally, detectives decided to arrest him and hope that during the 48 hours they could hold him and question him that he would break and confess. Now I'm gonna tell you the story of Albert Spaggiari, the infamous brain, the mastermind behind the most artistic and expensive heist of the century. When this all went down, Albert was 44. He was a well-respected man in his community. He's a photographer who had a nice little neighborhood photo shop where people would bring him film to develop or hire him to shoot weddings and banquets. Him and his wife Marcel, who went by Audi, which I don't know where they got that name from, but it's easy to say, so we're just going to call her that. 
They lived in an apartment on the eighth floor of the same building as the Photoshop and Audi's office. She was a registered nurse and would move about the city making house calls to her patient. The couple was married for 17 years, but they had no children. About five years before this, they bought a ruined farm in the Maritime Alps, about 25 miles away from Nice. The farm was in a beautiful area with gorgeous trees and rock formations, and they would begin to rebuild it with a little help from a mason in the nearby village, but otherwise Albert did a lot of the hard labor on his own, rebuilding the walls, roof, and chimney himself. They eventually turned the farm into a wonderful property that they decided to call the Wild Geese, which is kind of a weird name for a property, but whatever. Albert was a man of solitude, and he wanted to give up the Photoshop to live at the Wild Geese, raising chickens and reading his books. His love of solitude can be traced to his past, which I must say is an interesting one. At 17, he had run away to Italy to join the Sicilian bandit Giano because he had read his story and was fascinated with it. The Italian police, though, sent the teenager home, and two years later, at 19, he joined the French paratroopers to fight in the war in Indochina. There he got in trouble when he and his buddies held a gun to the head of someone they claimed had robbed them. The military court did not like this and sent him and his whole squad back to France in chains, where he then spent four years in jail. In 1958, after a stint in prison, he moved to North Africa to hopefully start a new life of solitude, working as a boilermaker. He then joined the right-wing secret army, which was trying to prevent Algerian independence. He learned that General de Gaulle would be visiting a city where Albert's mom had a shop and just casually offered to assassinate him for the army right there. The secret army, though, denied his request, and Albert decided he would do a mock assassination for his own pleasure is of course what we all do in our own free time. He held the president in the crosshairs of his rifle, but never pulled the trigger. Later, he was arrested for complicity in political terrorism, and was again put in jail for three and a half years this time. Somehow he made it back to France, and one day while he was having lunch with his wife and friend Jean Garton, he was under the idea that he was going to meet up with some people for a business deal right outside the bar he was at. Instead, he was arrested by the police and taken in for questioning. He was fingerprinted and photographed, and at 2.30pm, the police then had 48 hours to get him to crack. They went at him right away, going all out, yet Albert still denied any involvement in the heist. He refused his right to a doctor, saying that there was no need because he hadn't been touched, as it should have been because he wasn't the brain. After a full day, Albert was still lazily smoking his cigars, claiming that the police had made a mistake and they should just let him go already. Now his wife and friend he was having lunch with before being arrested didn't know he was taken by the police. They actually thought he was being kidnapped. So they went to the police where they then took in his wife for questioning but let his friend go. They questioned Audi asking if she had ever noticed her husband coming home late at night and covered in mud from digging the tunnel. She said no, she had her own job and often wasn't home every night either, claiming that marriage wasn't a slavery, which like, go you, Audi, you tell them, be an independent woman. She claimed she had no knowledge of Albert's business deals and that he was a secretive person, only telling her what he wanted her to know, and she was fine with that. The police then got a warrant for their property and took Audi up to the wild geese. The police searched the property and found guns and even a crossbow. But after interviewing people in the nearby village, they all claimed that Albert didn't even hunt. He was too nice to ever kill an animal. In fact, none of the villagers had anything bad to say about Albert at all. 
The police searched every inch of the property and even dug up the ground around it, but didn't find a single piece of the stolen $10 million. The police were getting desperate, knowing that they didn't have a lot of time left, so they told Albert that his acquaintances had ratted him out, told him that Audi had confessed things, and they even told him an interesting message they had from Interpol. That apparently someone calling themselves Albert Spagiari had traveled to the United States and contacted the CIA, which, first of all, how do you even do that? Did he just walk in the front doors of Langley, Virginia? But he introduced himself to the CIA as head of a group of expert burglars who would rob European embassies on behalf of the CIA. Which this is the part I don't really understand. Why would he offer that in the first place? What is that going to get him? If he had millions of dollars from the heist, he could go wherever he wanted. Why go and work for the CIA? That also draws attention to himself in the first place and puts him at greater risk for being caught because now the intelligence agency of another country knows he committed the heist. Because when the CIA asked who he was, he said, you have heard of the heist of the century, have you not? This was incredibly risky because if the CIA didn't accept his proposal, it's almost certain that they would report him to the French police, which is exactly what happened. The CIA connected Interpol about him, and then that got back to the French police. After 36 hours of non-stop interrogation, Albert finally gave in and began to talk. Albert was the brain, and the idea for the heist came to him randomly. He had rented a box at the bank, and one day while he was alone in there, it just popped into his mind. He photographed every inch of the place, and the fact that he just came up with this randomly honestly astounds me, and I find it so fascinating, and it would require such a high level of intellect, and I do know it's wrong and that they stole a bunch of money, but it's just so interesting to get into the minds of these people and figure out why they did it. After photographing the safe, Albert then went to the sewers. For six days, he scouted them, getting lost multiple times and having to crawl through spaces so small that if there would have been a flood, he would have died right there. He then went and got the sewer plans from Town Hall. They were public property and builders used them regularly, so his request wasn't suspicious at all. Albert knew that he would need special high-quality tools that would be hard to get, so he took the plan to the Marseille mob, and they wanted in. In total, there were 21 people involved in the heist. Albert, the brain, 10 of Albert's political friends, and 10 mobsters. For two months, they all worked every night digging up the tunnel and lugging in gear, being so careful as to block the entrance to the tunnel every day at dawn so that a sewer worker wouldn't just happen upon it accidentally. On July 17th, when the bank had closed for the weekend, is when they chose to attack. They cut through the last 18 inches of concrete and were met with the back of an armored armoire. But because Albert had planned ahead and got extra tools, they were able to get past it and into the vault. Once inside, Albert would say that they were all bursting with joy, working for two and a half days in a state of pure euphoria, which I would be pretty happy if I pulled that off. They welded the vault door shut and they covered ventilation grills so that their portable stove, which I mentioned earlier, wouldn't show any smoke and they could just cook their meals. Even the thieves didn't realize how much money was in this bank and they were astonished by all that they found in there. And on Monday morning, July 19th, they were getting ready to leave the vault. They wanted to paint Merci Monsieur Le director which if i translated that correctly basically means thank you mr director 
but they decided against this and instead wrote, without weapons, without violence, without hate. The police demand to know who Albert's political friends were, but he wouldn't give out their names. The majority of the stolen goods still weren't discovered, and Albert claimed that he and his political friends donated it to a right-wing political organization called the Katana, but they couldn't find any evidence that this organization existed at all. As far as I know, they never found Albert's accomplices or his share of the wealth, but they did think he was connected to smaller, earlier bank jobs in Nice that were preparation for this major heist. He was taken back to the bank with police and Judge Bozais from earlier, and he provided them enough details and information to convince them that he was in fact the brain. As he was being escorted back out of the bank, an onlooker shouted to him asking if he had any regrets, and Albert, still smoking his cigar, seemed very pleased with himself, smiled a bit, and said, I regret nothing. Information in this podcast was taken from a New York Times article written by Robert Daly titled The Heist of the Century. If you like this episode, I suggest you check it out for some more information that I chose not to include. Once again, thank you all for listening to my podcast After Dark. My name is Allison, and I hope you all have a great day, and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.